This episode was sponsored by Schneider Electric. Climate change is here, and so is the requirement to understand and report the risks that it brings to your business. As your partner in sustainability, Schneider Electric can help you navigate the winds of change. To see how, visit se.com forward slash climate risk. From GreenViz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California, sort of. On this week's edition, leveraging corporate cash to scale climate solutions, what needs to happen for business at COP27, $12 billion and counting for hard to decarbonize industries, and why blue carbon will be the next frontier of carbon credits. It's a sea change this week on 350. It's November 11th, 2022, Veterans Day in the United States. To all of our veterans listeners and their families, thank you so much for your service. And welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, one of the best soldiers I know is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. I'm saluting you, as I always do. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So much to unpack there. (laughs) Thank you, Joel, for that vote of confidence. But also, um, thank you, yes, to every veteran who's listening. Um, We do appreciate your service. And I have to ask you, though, I know exactly where I am, but what, yeah, what do you mean sort yeah. of in so a way? So we're, as, as we do every week, recording this on Wednesday, and this is airing on Friday. And by the time this airs, I will be in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt for COP27 for the second week of the event. So that's why I'm sort of in Oakland. I'm actually here right now, as you can see from uh, the video that we're sharing. And um, uh, But, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. Tonight, actually. <sighs> so, are you going to do anything um, fun while you're there? Uh, I'm hoping so. You know, it's uh, it, it, it going to COP is always a little opaque in terms of what's going to be happening, how you get around, what's you know what's nearby. It's really hard, and it seems to be even harder uh, in Sharm El Sheikh just from finding you know looking around on maps to seeing how far and close things are. But having said that. We will be in a beautiful Red Sea beach resort <laughs> for a few <laughs> days. And um, uh, our colleague, Teresa Lieb, uh, who covers uh, nature uh, and, uh, and biodiversity and food issues, will be uh, there as well. And, uh, you know, we may just uh, go snorkeling or diving or something for uh, a few hours just to get away. Um, other than that, I'm it's all business. It's uh, it's, it's cop, and uh, you know if you've been following what's been going on this week, it's a uh, uh, you know it's more of same, which is always a two-edged sword. It's it, there's more and more stuff going on. To Wednesday, the day we're recording this was Finance Day, and a lot of new commitments on financing, loss and damage, and 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 other other things, technologies and such. Um, but it's all just seems so small ball relative to what's needed. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's typical for cops. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still assessing what I'm hearing. Um, one of the things I, I want to follow up is the 
the pledges by some, I think there was like 25 countries um, to get more clear about what they mean about supporting climate tech mm. and what their definitions are. I That was to me kind of interesting um, because it, it could make it quicker and to get incentives for certain things. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to peek into that. And, um, you know, lots of other different things. I'm really glad Teresa's going because I understand from afar that there's a big, much bigger focus on the agricultural and food and security issues that are being caused. Um, and that, that are causing climate change yeah. too. And biodiversity so and that, nature, which yeah, is increasingly exactly. where, where Teresa is focusing her work. Um, yeah, it's well. Good luck. Well, to all of us, <laughs> we we we, yeah, right. we need stuff. <laughs> we need stuff to happen there, and um, and and we will see uh, how it shakes out, or what difference, if any, does all this make. But before we get to the future, let's go back, as we do, to the week in review. And Heather, I'd love to start with uh, a piece that you wrote um, about something taking place, or at least some announcements that took place uh, this week at COP uh, with the First Movers Coalition, uh, John Kerry and a whole cast of characters, World Economic Forum. Uh, tie it all together and tell us what happened. Yeah, so the First Movers Coalition was uh, one of the big stories of last year's COP in, in Glasgow. And the focus is on basically convincing companies to make what they what you would call an advanced market commitment or an advanced um, commitment to purchasing some of these technologies that are not at scale. So the the first sectors that this group uh, agreed to support were steel, so low carbon steel production, aluminum, aviation, shipping, trucking. Um, Carbon dioxide removal came into play a little bit earlier this year. It was, I think, the March timeframe. And now the, this organization is committing to purchases of, of technologies that help with concrete and cement. So there's uh, quite a focus on, you know, the headline is $12 billion, So that's the commitments that these companies have collectively made to buying from startups and innovation, you know, in, innovators in, in these different areas, whether that's, um, you know, like some of the, um, like I said, mentioned before, some of the, the steel that's being produced without these high, high intensity um, thermal processes, it's, it's a different approach um, and, and so forth. So that's, that's what's going on. Um, it's, it's sort of a, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the progress. Um, haven't I, I? Kind of was trying to poke at that with with the um, with Antonia Gual, who's who's one of the the heads of this initiative. I mean, there have been some. Um, we, we hear about Apple. They they produced uh, some carbon free aluminum that was smelted through a process that produces oxygen rather than greenhouse gases. They they did announce that earlier this year. We've got Scania. Um, we, we've got a little case study on the site um, talking about how they're using steel in their trucks and so forth. So we we are seeing um, little indicators, um, but yeah, a lot more needs to happen. And the idea is that these folks that are willing to pay a little bit more upfront to help get these these technologies out there and, and more commercially viable are helping create the market for everyone. Yeah, I think this demand side uh, approach to a lot of these technologies is is really helpful, and you've got 
you know, companies like Bang & Olufsen, I mean, the high-end uh, audio uh, component company, they buy they buy aluminum and they just joined because they want to be uh, buying, you know, green or whatever kind of aluminum that uh, has less of an impact, uh, whatever it's being called. And 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 we're seeing that a lot of that. I was uh, last week at Green Build here in San Francisco, uh, the U.S. Green Building Conference annual shindig, and the, you know they were sizable, although nowhere near as big as it used to be. Uh, uh, expo floor, there was a lot of green steel and green cement being exhibited. So this has gone from science experiments and bench scale prototyping to to market. And yes, it's more expensive and there's a lot of uh, barriers to entry, but uh, it I think this is one of those things that in two to five years, it's going to really start to kick in and we'll start to see that rounding the heel of that hockey stick. Yep. And chemicals are up next. So all of you chemical com- companies out there, Stay tuned. Yeah. I, I wrote down something in sort of my notes on COP27, just thinking about ideas. I said, is COP27 the climate tech COP? And mm. I think there's a case to be made that it is. Uh, there's been a number of initiatives to p- pump money into startups, uh, both through government and, uh, and, and and private investors. Um, and then there's the, the other side is the, uh, the market uptake, the, the demand side. I think that we're seeing a lot more focus on climate technologies uh, this year so far than, than mm-hmm. I've ever seen. So that's mm-hmm. that bodes mm-hmm. well for all that's going on. It does indeed. Yeah. But um, let's talk about uh, another aspect of, of climate and business, which is cash, money in the bank. <laughs> um, and some remarkable, uh, this is from uh, Julian Krauss-Polk uh, from Drawdown Labs, um, and they've been uh, focusing, as, as more and more uh, organizations are, on the carbon intensity of cash that companies, banks, and others uh, hold, you know, is in, in their accounts, and how that's being invested, you know, by the banks and others. And it's it's really remarkable. There was a, a study called the Carbon Bankroll: The Climate Impact and Untapped Power of of uh, Corporate Cash. And they talk about, um, I just think this is remarkable. Heather, you've written a lot about Microsoft. And they say that uh, in 2021, the emissions generated by Microsoft's $130 billion in cash and investments were comparable to the cumulative emissions generated by Microsoft's manufacturing, transporting, and use of every Microsoft product in the world. Similarly, Amazon... um, had $81 billion in cash and investments, and and that generated more carbon emissions than the emissions generated by the entire Amazon, by by all the energy Amazon purchased to power all of their facilities around the world. It's it's fulfillment centers, data centers, physical stores, and other facilities. So this is an issue that's been, I've just seen kicking around for six, eight months. And, um, you know, and and it's it's really summed up with one of the subheads from from Julian's piece that cash is not climate neutral. <laughs> well, I love that. Yeah, I love that subhead myself. Um, I was pretty floored by this story, and th- th- this is the p- the piece is based on a seminar that the um, the group did, which I think is great. So th- to help, because I think a lot of companies don't realize this, and I um, and I, when you when you think about that one of the participants was Patagonia. And they realized about five years ago that their money, um, their banking partners were directly funding the Dakota Access Pipeline. Meanwhile, they were supporting 
the people trying to stop it. And so their money was at odds with their their mission statement, if you will, and then what they were trying to do publicly. Um, and, and they were just sort of not aware of that. I mean, it was just one of those, you know, the, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. So now they're really focusing on um, looking at where their their money is and who where the banks are, are making their investments. This is going to get really interesting, um, I think, as we start hearing more, at least in the U.S., um, as we start hearing more about um, the red states and where they're agreeing to put money and how and the fight over whether whether uh, things are too ESG woke and now you know at this at this moment we don't know um, exactly how the the congressional um, makeup we don't know exactly what it will look like and we that will probably be the case for a few more weeks but if we start seeing more scrutiny of banks, um, which has been promised by the Republicans, now what's that gonna do to the, the, you know, to the companies? Are they going to be able to change their banking relationships? Are they going to want to? I think this, this is whole ripple effect right down, right down to the treasury of, of each company that's gonna be really, I think, affected over the next, I don't know, maybe 18 months to two years as people try to get a grip on, on where their money is. Yeah, I mean, it could drive uh, a lot of the banking relationships uh, offshore mm-hmm. to HSBC, which has had problems of its own, or, or Barclays, right. or any any number of other or to smaller institutions. ones, yeah, right to smaller institutions. Because that was that point was also made in the story that a number of mid sized institutions are really focused. That's their whole mission. You know, they they want to have that money, um, and they're you know this isn't. That's actually almost like a a case of disruption. You know, you have the, these big corporations that can't move as quickly and you have the nimble kind of startups that come in and this might be this might um, be just another example of disruption in the banking industry um, as this plays out. Yeah, first national bank of wokeness. Uh, but I love this uh, this that this topic is is finally coming into its own. And I do think, you know, for all we uh, often poo-poo cops uh, and they don't really, you know, making the progress, they're really just talk talkathons. That they are a forcing function uh, and a focusing function for a lot of these issues that might not otherwise, you know, get the attention they deserve. Certainly not at Earth Day or World uh, World uh, Environment Day, or you know, or maybe even at the UN, you know, Climate Week. So COP becomes this global platform for these global issues. And I think that regardless of what happens with the negotiations, which are non-trivial, of course. That there's so much, so many other things going on, like this first movers coalition and like this focus on corporate cash, uh, that that need attention. So I'm I'm really thrilled with this. But let's go to the third story, and I'm going to let you do the deep dive on this one, uh, <laughs> Heather, because uh, well, you're a diver for one thing, but also it's about <laughs> oceans and coastlands and uh, a great piece by uh, our senior editor Jesse Klein. Yeah, so this is blue carbon, and blue carbon will be the next frontier of carbon crediting. So as companies look to projects that can help with their their uh, final, the final part of their net zero equation, where are the places they can invest? And so the blue carbon refers to the carbon sequestration approaches that use oceans and coastal ecosystems. So it could be, I mean, the thing that's been in particular focus is mangroves, right? So um, I forget exactly when it was, but Apple um, has had a focus on on mangroves uh, and how they 
are helping them with their sequestration goals. But there's also a lot of other things like kelp and um, even even projects like biomass, so taking different types of biomass and, and sending it to the, the the ocean floor to let it do its thing there. So, you know, I think the this is this kind of dovetails with a piece I just wrote, with which is how much we don't know about the ocean and how much uh, it helps us today with with our climate um, challenges and you know how how these are inter- interrelated and interconnected. Um, and the point of this story is that that there's much more uh, focus now uh, on how we could create carbon credits around these various projects. Right now, um, all I think the number is only 3% of all climate investments is directed towards blue carbon projects. But if you think about it, mangroves hold four to 10 times the sequestration potential of tropical rainforests. So as, yeah, I know, right? So as we realize that we can't plant our, you know, we can't plant enough trees to get us out of this mess we're we're in, um, you know, how do we, how do we look at other places and, and could these other places, the ocean and specific, specifically, um, really help our cause. Um, another statistic I think that is worth pondering is that coastal habitats cover 2% of the ocean's surface, but store 50% of the carbon in their sediment. So it's just, yeah, in particular, these the, and, and by the way, when you talk about co-benefits, um, and you were talking about biodiversity before, doing these things, having restoring these coastal ecosystems is a resilience strategy. It it helps with flooding. It helps mitigate coastal flooding. It brings back the the biodiversity and the nature and the, these species that 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 have been displaced. Um, it could address things like climate migration of people who are again you know back to the 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 resilience angle who who today rely on these sorts of of ecosystems for their for their livelihoods and also to protect them from the rising sea levels so i think it's just one of these things where um we've heard the word blue carbon over the last couple of years but we haven't yet tapped, if you will, the the potential. and But now um, organizations are trying to get there. Yeah, I love the social aspect of this too, because we're, uh, as you say, you know, protecting coastal communities by reduce, by improving the, uh, or restoring the coastal areas that, that reduce the uh, impact of st- storm surges and flooding um, and creating jobs and maybe creating jobs uh, for some of the people who uh, who, who have lost their fishing fisheries or the fisheries are depleted and no longer viable. And maybe some of this restoration will actually restore those fisheries. So it just goes round and round. And, and yes, as you call it, co-benefits. Uh, I think that's uh, indicative of a lot of climate solutions, but it's really great to, and, and I think much more explicit in this one. It's much more explicit. And there are, by the way, there are some explicit methodologies coming into place. Vera, uh, the gold standard and the American Carbon Registry all have frameworks they're putting into place to help companies figure out exactly how they can account for these things. And Salesforce is already on this. They've, they've got their, they, they themselves have a blue carbon credit framework that they're helping work on with the World Economic Forum. Um, and they, I know that they have uh, a role there, a role based focused on on the ocean and um, that sort of thing. So. I think this is, you know, just as you wrote about all of these biodiversity roles coming into play, I think we're going to see more focused on ocean strategies and water. A new meaning for the term 
blue collar jobs. So Joel, I'll go back to your mission at COP over the next couple of weeks. What are you expecting to see and where are you focusing your attention? Well, you know, I go where where the large companies are, you know, COP, Davos, Climate Week, and, and on. And and that's where I'll be looking here in, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, um, you know, going to business events, talking to companies, uh, just understanding, you know, where they're at, what, what some of the new issues are for them, some of the successes and struggles that they're going through, and just, you know, what's the conversation like? Um, and to get a preview of that, before we both left for Egypt, I spoke with uh, my old friend Aaron Kramer, the president and CEO of BSR, formerly known as Business for Social Responsibility, the uh, nonprofit uh, consultancy and business network, to ask him, what is he expecting to see? Uh, what's the role of business this year at COP? Here's what he had to say. Well, the business context overall is fairly turbulent, you know, that macroeconomic pressures, not least um, the energy markets that have been completely roiled, uh, the political context, recession, inflation. So there is a lot of uncertainty in the world right now, a lot of cross currents, and businesses are trying to make sense of this. Even businesses that are thinking long-term, and that's the whole point of, of COP, is to consider energy transition over uh, you know, a good number of years, but the present day is 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 turbulent. And so I think that is coloring companies thinking it, it doesn't erase long term thinking at all. But but it, it it's sort of the, the shadow alongside um, the, the commitments that remain pretty strong in terms of the energy uh, transition. So do you see are companies backsliding? Are they are they backing off their net zero commitments, for example? Companies are not backing off of their commitments. The question is whether the pace is slowing at all in terms of progress towards them. So companies continue to add commitments. Companies continue to make investments. Uh, companies continue to look for um, innovative business models and products. Companies continue to add more collaborations. Uh, and all of that is continuing. It's possible it's slowing down, but it's most certainly not reversing. And, and I don't think, barring even the worst uh, economic cataclysm, which we haven't seen, that, that that's likely to happen. So how does this affect what will be going on in Sharm el-Sheikh? So uh, in my view, I, I don't think we can look at um, COP, whether it's this year or any year, as a singular event. The way it's evolved, you've got the governmental negotiations. They're a little bit different year to year. This is not a year when big global agreements are likely to be struck. Uh, as we know, the, the government's going to be focusing on climate finance, loss and damage, adaptation, climate justice. That's where the governments will be focused. Businesses are there, are in, really in a parallel universe, um, and businesses are not as focused on influencing uh, the governmental debate, intergovernmental negotiations, although they are to some degree more focused on what many people are calling the implementation cop. How do we get there? How do we deploy new technologies? How do we make sure that the hard to abate sectors are generating even more, more progress? So it's really about getting the job done rather than, you know, for example, what we most famously saw in Paris 
uh, in 2015 in terms of a grand uh, global deal. That's not what businesses are looking for. Businesses are there uh, to make more progress on getting the job done and turning ambition into action and commitments into progress. So who are they trying to influence businesses? Well, you know, I mean, the interesting fact is one way to put it that many of the businesses that come to COP are already agreed and they're talking to each other about things that they basically already agree on. So again, it's a question of how they get the job done. I think that business by showing up does two things. One is there is an opportunity to influence governments, especially at a time when governments uh, are uh, at risk of slowing down or turning back because of overall economic conditions. The need, I'm, I'm talking to you from Europe, the need, need to keep energy flowing uh, over the winter. So business, I think, has one solid message for governments, which is don't turn back, don't let today's problems get in the way of progress that we need not only for today, but most certainly for tomorrow. Um, but I think businesses also just send a strong symbolic message by showing up in numbers and demonstrating that this is about the real economy and the real economy can deliver solutions. And I think that is a crucial uh, message to, to send to the entire world. And you know what happens in Sharm El Sheikh shouldn't stay in Sharm El Sheikh. Um, it needs what happens there needs to influence what everyone does the other fifty weeks of the year. But it doesn't seem like business is showing up in Sharm El Sheikh at the scale of which it, 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 they had in the past. Is that a factor of location? Is it a factor of budgets? Is it a factor of of something else? So first of all, I think there will be a significant business. Um, um, audience there, business presence there. Will it be as uh, large as it was in Glasgow? Maybe not. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it will still be very significant. And uh, to the degree that some companies don't come or come with fewer people, um, and we've heard of you know a couple of banks that have several dozen people coming, for example. So I wouldn't want anyone to conclude that business is not showing up at COP this year. It is. To the degree that the presence may be smaller, I think it's exactly what you said, a combination of location, budgets, and frankly, bandwidth. Um, you know, CEOs have a lot on their plate right now. I do think there will be fewer CEOs uh, in Sharm El Sheikh than there were in Glasgow. Um, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and um, people aren't maybe necessarily ready to um, uh, dedicate the time. After all, we saw the new UK prime minister uh, couldn't decide whether or not to come. He, he is ultimately coming, um, but um, after some twists and turns. So I just think there's a lot going on in the world right now, but business will show up and show up in a big way. Every cop that I can remember, uh, there's, there's always some concern about greenwash and who's sponsoring and who's front and center. This seems to be a, a much bigger issue this time around, and I'm not sure whether that's a, how much of that's a media construct or how much of that is is a reality where companies that are, uh, you know, let's say call them problematic, are front and center here. Uh, does that concern you, or how do you, how are you and how are you seeing this moment? It, it's a it's a really important question. So, taking a step back. What we have today, and I think we will continue to see over the coming years, is two things happening simultaneously that won't make sense to a lot of people. So on the one hand, there is no doubt that we are going to see continued ambition rising on the part of business, more investments, more action, more partnerships, more, more policy advocacy. But we are going to see the impacts of climate 
hit us with increasing frequency and increasing strength. The average person will not be able to reconcile those two things for, for I think, obvious reasons. And that is going to lead to a sense that when a company has stated an ambition, but maybe not yet achieved it, that constitutes greenwashing. Businesses absolutely need to be accountable. There's no doubt about it. And that's why the Secretary General has um, you know, asked Catherine McKenna to chair a task force to look at net zero commitments. And that's, I think, all very good and important. But not every gap between ambition and action is greenwashing. Sometimes it's just, we haven't gotten there yet. We're struggling. New technologies aren't available. There are good faith reasons why those gaps exist. So I think accountability is important, but if accountability um, creates a disincentive for companies to set ambition, then I think we have a problem on our hands. So we've got to distinguish between things that are misleading, that to me is greenwashing, versus works in progress, that's not greenwashing. Yeah. So what's BSR going to be doing uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh? Um, we will be focusing a fair bit on uh, climate justice, on tra transition action plans, looking at how new reporting and disclosure requirements are bringing some new people into corporate discussions on climate targets, corporate controllers getting more involved. What are the implications uh, of, of all of that? Um, and so those are some of the things that uh, we'll be focusing on. And I should say we're really pleased to see uh, that, you know, frankly, do a lot to the advocacy community uh, that climate justice is going to be more uh, powerfully on the agenda at this COP. And that's something we're doing a lot of work on these days. And we're really excited about it's overdue and really important. Yeah. So on your flight home from Sharm el-Sheikh in a, in a, in a uh, week or two, a couple of weeks, and you're reflecting on, wow, that really was a success. What happened? I think the one thing that I would like to see, well, two things I would like to see. One is I do think it's incumbent on incumbents, on uh, on government leaders to put a stake in the ground and say, yes, we are facing energy problems right now. And that is all the more reason for us to accelerate our shift to a clean energy economy. And we are committed to that. We're committed to that with public policy. We're committed to that with international cooperation. We're committed to that. Uh, with uh, climate finance. That, I think, is is a, an absolutely essential message to be sent. And I will return home after Sharm. The, the, the heads of state, heads of government will be, many of them will be going to the G20 in Indonesia. And I hope they take that message uh, to, to Indonesia with them. The second thing is, is finance for climate justice. We will have more Pakistans in the future, a country that is not an historical emitter, but was underwater in a huge portion of the country. So the pledges that were made in Paris in 2015 have not been kept, even at a time of economic distress. We need to start moving those dollars uh, and public climate finance is important and we're not there yet. So I'd love to see uh, renewed uh, and strengthened commitments on that. What else haven't we talked about uh, that you think is important to, to make clear here? Well, I will be personally looking to see what the NGO community is like. Egypt is a country where NGOs operate with some peril. And I hope that civil society will be able uh, to um, be part of the proceedings in the way that they ought to without 
any sort of interference. I'm hopeful that that will be the case, but um, I think it's really important. And, and next year's COP in the United Arab Emirates presents a similar question. So I think it's really important that as these COPs have developed, they are the place where people from all over, from many different organizations, from small villages are able to come to try to influence uh, public discussions that affect them deeply. So they need to have a voice. And I hope that this year's host and next year's host honor and respect that. This spring, the WSLA alumni group recognized 11 women at the forefront of the sustainability profession. These leaders have made a difference by advancing new technologies or strategies, by overcoming personal and professional obstacles, and by committing to mentoring other women. They join more than 85 women who have been honored since 2014. I've been honored to interview some of the latest inductees here on GreenBiz 350. And this week I'm joined by Jill Dumaine. She's currently the Global Vice President of Sustainability Solutions at inspection and certification company SGS, but Jill previously held high-level positions at Blue Sign Technologies and Patagonia. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Heather. I'm happy to be here today. Thrilled you could finally join us. So I'm starting with this question with for everyone. And that's your inspiration. What inspired you to focus on a career related to environmental sustainability and ESG writ larger? Well, I will say I am of an age with a certain amount of decades under my belt now that it wasn't really a career when I started. And so what's interesting when I look back on my trajectory and I get this question from students, what did you do? How did you land where you landed? I said, well, mine was a pretty a road with a lot of curves in it, let's say. It wasn't a straight path because it really didn't exist. So I started in textiles and apparel. I was That's what I studied at the university and went to work for Patagonia straight out of school. And I will say had this sort of epiphany slash early, early career crisis moment. Crisis is too strong of a word, but questioning moment. I'm like, wow, is this what I studied was to make clothes for people like this is this really what's happening okay well that's what I chose and Patagonia couldn't have been a better company from a performance related super interesting but there was this element of honestly I couldn't afford to buy the clothes I was making at that time is that is that what I'm doing and then the sustainability work came in very very early in my time there I started in 1989 at Patagonia the the internal sustainability work in earnest started around 1990-91 And I was really at the right place at the right time. And that really filled that void of there's got to be something more in a career than making clothes and making great clothes and performance clothes. I couldn't have asked for a better company. But that that's really what started it was that um, feeling there had to be something more in a life's Mm -hmm. pursuit. Yeah, that is interesting. We we won't talk about Patagonia that much, but but I, I relate to your your discomfort with that, because uh, I always think about how lucky I am to be privileged enough to buy certain things that have yeah. a, a more of a sustainability bent, and it just com- completely claws at me that there's not more products um, just that are built from the ground up like that and that are affordable. So that's a whole nother podcast discussion. That is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I would say, you know, as a 22-year-old student at a university, you're in a very different 
bought, then even mm-hmm. a few years later, and I would say coming to understand buying better and buying less then becomes the mantra where you can kind of look at that affordability with certain durable goods, clearly mm-hmm. food and things that's you right, a whole nother podcast mm-hmm. on accessibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what do you believe has been the most important factor in your success? You said you talked about the curves. So yeah. what made yeah. you navigate those curves successfully and get to where you are now? I think a few things, honestly. One, I was in a in a field I loved. I've been a seamstress and a textile person. My teenage job was working at a fabric store. So I was kind of in my world, in my passion, doing what I loved. And 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 that made it easy to keep striving. And then this other point, maybe in that philosophical question at the beginning we led with, started to come in. And so I was working in a field I was very passionate about. And then I was introduced to the secondary field that became my, my passion of today, of how do, you, how do you ultimately use business and what you are really good at in that business world and bring it into the sustainability world and kind of vice versa because they start to inform each other. So I think I have a natural curiosity, sort of this lifelong learner I would qualify myself as. And it was just sort of one day, one step led to the next. So, wow, we got to figure this out. Wow, this doesn't make sense. How do we put this together? So I would say perseverance is an important factor in this part of the industry even today. It's it's never a straight path. There's ups and downs. I think maybe less downs than there used to be. Um, But still, nonetheless, even in today's economic situation, the question comes to me almost weekly. What do you think about ESG and the economic challenges we're having? Is it going to survive, et cetera? So I think the perseverance and seeing the long game, but then seeing what are the short steps to get there. What is it, you know, just to digress for a moment, what is it you today spend most of your time thinking about in, in your role at SGS? So SGS is uniquely positioned because of our scale. We have 96,000 employees around the world. We're present in 140 countries and just about every industry you can think of under the sun. So we have this immense scale in our company with a lot of technical expertise. So what I spend my day is how do we use that for good? What are some unique positions we're sitting in that we can bring this knowledgeable scale, not just scale, but knowledgeable, deep knowledge over 180 years, I forget, 180 years, I think, of the company to do good work in sustainability. And I feel really fortunate that both the board and the CEO support it carte blanche. Just they don't want, um, how did my CEO say it to me when I first stepped in this jail? I don't want rubber stamped initiatives. I want you to do real shifts. What are real things in business? So We have clients that are extremely mature in their sustainability and ESG journeys. We have clients that say, I I need a 30-minute training for my CEO. We really have the full breadth. And so the ability to bring this knowledgeable scale into different parts of industry is what I spend most of my day thinking and working on. Got it. What has been your most successful leadership habit or strategy? I think one that I learned really early as a young manager was um, how to empower my employees so that they found their way. And I looked a lot of my job was, of course, coaching, informing, training, 
but also kind of putting these guardrails on the highway, if you will. And they could bounce back and forth. But my job was let them don't fall off, like stay on the trail, don't go off the cliff. And um, and that gave them a lot of empowerment to try what they thought was the best way. And they maybe made different decisions than I did, but ultimately got to the same place feeling empowered and confident, which allowed them to go to the next point. And I really saw this in a project we did at Patagonia called the Footprint Chronicles, which goes back quite a ways. But I just saw Joel reference it in a comment on LinkedIn this week. So I was <laughs> it kind of made my heart warm to see somebody still remembers that project um, <laughs> where it was really a, an experiment in, in transparency early, early on. And I think it was 2005 or 2007, somewhere in there. And we brought a team together that we didn't really know what we were doing. We were shooting from intuition, kind of trying to bring out this new way of looking at transparency. And, and the team became very, very empowered. And it was amazing to watch these people that had nothing to do with sustainability. They were the project management or they were in marketing or they were in photo editing, whatever the categories were they all left this project more empowered than they stepped in to bring sustainability into their jobs. And so I've been lucky enough to see a few places where giving this leeway really paid off with the employees then going in their own way and my colleagues taking their own um, pathway in a strong, strong position that way. Mm -hmm. So transferring skills and empowering people that's um makes me think of mentoring and i yeah wsla has a big focus on that so how is mentoring the next generation of leadership changed your own career trajectory or outlook yeah one it makes me confident i'll be able to retire one day so there's a little <laughs> bit of a selfish component in there right um but it's super exciting to see this next generation coming up it really is and i think um they bring a different perspective. They bring a different energy. They bring um, the future, really. So as I have progressed in my career and have had really fantastic opportunity to provide mentorship to people, it's really by spending time listening, thinking, again, allowing a safe space for them to show up and, and test their ideas and give them honest feedback like, nah. I wouldn't do that. Or, hey, maybe that, try it. Let's see what happens. And if it if it doesn't go quite straight, then we fix it and go from there. And one of my uh, proudest moments around mentorship was after I left Patagonia and speaking to a woman um, whom I knew but didn't work that closely with. And one of the women I had mentored a lot over the years, her name is Alyssa Foster. And she now had a team of younger women reporting to her. And this woman, Elena, came and she said, yeah, Alyssa, she's like our Jill. She's mentoring us now. And it was really amazing to see it like so clearly this succession down the line of, of holding that responsibility and, and, um, and really an honor to be able to do that. So one final question for you. What advice would you give to anyone of any age pursuing a career in corporate sustainability? Oh, it's an interesting one today, right? It's a really different world than we've been in really ever in this time, I would say. And the benefits of that is this explosion of the last however many years you want to couch that in. Um, 
to, you know, the sustainability people and resources at such a premium. And so a really kind of a nice time in the limelight to be able to go into new jobs. And I say it that way because that's not going to always be that way. It's not going to last forever. And so the advice I've given to people kind of goes back to even how I got into it. So maybe it's very personal reflection of follow what you love, do what you love. And even if it is within sustainability, what's that second chapter? Is it accounting? Are you really good with numbers? How do you play that passion into the sustainability movement? And or is it, you know, my world was textiles, is somebody else is going to be design or computer engineering? You know, what is that, that close second, if you are entering into that corporate sustainability, and or to students thinking about how do you do both so that when you come into a company, you're able to have a conversation that's bigger than just sustainability because it needs to be able to fit into these business conversations. And for a long time, I've, I've said one of my things I would love to see is where sustainability, it's not less important, it's not more important, it is a business KPI that can't be ignored. And so I often will draw in my head a little mental image of the Excel spreadsheet of all your business KPIs you're keeping track of and sustainability ESG. It's one of them. It's, it's not overemphasized or underemphasized. So for me, I think that would be great because then it has the same power. And for new people coming in, there's something beyond just the sustainability piece you can offer to the company that you'll go to work for. Great advice. Thank you very much, Jill, for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. My pleasure. You just heard from Jill Dumaine. She's currently the Global Vice President of Sustainability Solutions at Inspection and Certification Company SGS and one of the 11 women honored for the 2022 Women in Sustainability Leadership Awards. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We've got seven of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you, your comments, questions, and tips. You can find us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode was sponsored by Schneider Electric. Climate change is here, and so is the requirement to understand and report the risks that it brings to your business. As your partner in sustainability, Schneider Electric can help you navigate the winds of change. To see how, visit se.com forward slash climate risk.